You're listening to The Playtyper Guy. Hi, I'm uh, Stephen Robinson, or the Playtyper Guy, as my son calls me. I am happy to have with me today Billy Courier for the People's Parody Project. And he's uh, worked for the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., and uh, his work's been published in Newsweek, the LA Times, Think Progress, The Hill, HuffPost, and many more. And as a graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Georgia State University School of Law, definitely an ideal person to walk us through just a crazy right-wing takeover of uh, North Carolina's courts, which we would like to imagine would be sort of this objective arbiter of the law. And we've learned that that's slowly becoming not the case. I think, Billy, had you'd recently uh, written this book, Usurpers, Had Voters Stopped the GOP Takeover of North Carolina's Courts. And it regrettably seems almost like sort of the Star Wars new hope of the story. And right now we're entering the Empire Strikes Back kind of democratic backsliding. Can you just sort of uh, take people through what happened on Friday, February 3rd, when uh, the court moved to rehear two major voting rights cases that it just previously decided? So about a month ago, we had this new Republican majority sworn into our state Supreme Court. Um, That was the beginning of January. The Republicans swept the elections in November, so that gave them this new majority. We've had a progressive majority for um, six years, I think, coming into this. And recently, in the past year or so, that progressive majority struck down a voter ID law because they found that it was racially discriminatory. They also struck down several sets of election districts because they were unconstitutionally biased in favor of Republican candidates. Um, We've had a long history of partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering here in North Carolina. And our state Supreme Court finally stepped up and did something about it and said, you know, you can't draw these districts that that determine the outcome of the election where the voters don't even really have a say that violates the North Carolina Constitution. But the Republicans in our state legislature didn't like those rulings, and so they asked the court to reconsider them. And the court has only done that a handful of times in its history. I think the most recent time that they did that until recently was 1987, if I recall, in the 80s. They accepted both of these petitions to rehear these cases. So now it's looking like the new Republican majority is going to overturn these really important victories for voting rights that we've had in North Carolina in the last couple of years. And they're sort of abandoning any pretense of, you know, the courts sort of taking each case as it comes to them. They didn't have to take mm-hmm. these cases. I mean, the issue of gerrymandering is going to come back before this court. You know, we knew it was, but they want to take these cases out. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very scary prospect. And I think it really shows what we're looking at over the next several years from, from this court. I was reading the New York Times, uh, had an article about this on Friday, February 3rd, and it just said, there's no pretense, you said, regarding the motivations. It was just, now there's a Republican majority, and it's going to sort of undo these cases, these very critical voting rights cases. And North Carolina is in sort of a forefront of what we would call in general democratic backsliding of partisan gerrymandering, often going back to Jim Crow, where states have, you know, trying to suppress the black vote, arguably anyone. And that's been their defense, right? They're trying to suppress not, it's not racial, we're just trying to make sure our people win. And there's some sort of 
theory behind this of where is that's not a bad thing. And it goes back to John Roberts or something so that it's not bad if it's not overtly racial, even though Democrats are, you know, black people are predominantly Democratic voters. And if trying to knock out Democrats would, in, in essence, um, keep black people from voting. The history of voter suppression in North Carolina goes back to the beginning of North Carolina. If you look at what happened here 10 years ago, right, when the Republicans took control of our state legislature for the first time, one of the first things that they, that they did was pass a voter ID law. Well, I shouldn't call it voter ID law. It's a voter suppression law because it not only imposed a voter ID, it cut early voting it ended pre-registration for teenagers. Uh, it did it like a ton of different things to just make it harder to vote, basically. And this bill was struck down a few years later by the federal courts because the legislators had literally gone to the state agencies, the DMV, and said, which IDs do black people have? Which IDs do white people have? And then when they wrote the law, they allowed the white people's ID to count for voter ID purposes, but the IDs that were more likely to be held by black people, they didn't. And that, that was struck down because, you know, in that case, they sort of took the veil off and they said, this is not about partisanship. We want to keep black people from voting. That's what it, that's what it came down to. And I think they've gotten a little smarter about that now. You know, this time when they passed the voter ID, we didn't hear about anything like that. But it's still a pretty restrictive law. And there's still, as the courts have found, there's going to be a disparate impact on certain voters. And, you know, here in North Carolina, in a purple state, I mean, every single vote can count in some of these races. And so there's definitely a chance that it could have um, a negative impact. And I want to talk about your your book. Um, and I'm going to encourage people to read it. I'm going to include a link in our descriptions here. But could you just sort of walk us through what your book's about, what it was covering in this period, and why it sort of was optimistic, and then now things are sort of shifting to a different turn? Um, well, uh, the book starts in 2013. I, I mentioned earlier that's when the Republicans took over and they were actually they were circulating this memo that one of their political consultants had written up and the title was something like how the republican party can stay in power for 113 years that was how long the democrats had been in power before them and in this memo they said that the the key is controlling the state supreme court because they knew that if they could gerrymander their way into like a permanent republican majority as long as they control the state supreme court the courts probably wouldn't do anything about it. And the governor has no role in redistricting here. So, you know, that would have just been, uh, it could have been a permanent majority. But instead, what happened was the, uh, well, the legislature tried to pack the courts in 2016 and 2018, because this memo said, you've got to change judicial elections to help Republicans, basically. Um, that was part of their plan to control the court, and then they could control the election districts. And... So what they tried to do was pack our court in 2016 after the voters elected a progressive majority. There was massive outcry, huge protests at the legislature, so they backed down. And in 2018, they tried a different way to pack the court. They tried to gerrymander our judges. They made our elections partisan, which I think we were the first state in 100 years to do that. And that has really, I think, been the the most crucial change that the legislature has made was making elections partisan because the last two elections they've they've done really well they've swept the state supreme court elections but we managed to stop so many of those other power grabs that's why when i wrote the book i was feeling pretty optimistic in 2018 we managed to stop this court packing plan and we also elected to the court justice anita earls who was a voting rights attorney a civil rights attorney 
who had sued the legislature over their, their discriminatory voter ID law and their discriminatory election districts and won in federal court. She's a very good attorney. And so I started writing the book in 2019 and 2020 when, and at the time when I started, we actually had six Democrats and one Republican on our state Supreme Court, which is hard to believe now. But now we have this five to four Republican majority that's going to be in power for at least the next five or six years, unless, you know, something unexpected happens. So it's a whole different ballgame than it was, you know, just a year ago here. And Anita uh, Earls, the justice you'd mentioned, I'd seen on your Twitter, you commented that she is sort of, not for surprising reasons, perhaps been kind of a, a target of right wing ire. Could you tell us a little bit about that or at least what you observed? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, we saw this in 2018 when she first ran for elective office. You know, she was fresh off of two really big voting rights victories over the legislature. And the Republicans were really pulling out all the stops to try to to try to keep her off the court. They passed all these different laws to to try to handicap her campaign, basically. Um, but none of them worked. They also ran like a soft on crime attack ad, you know, because she had represented criminal defendants in her job as a civil rights attorney. And so they they called her a danger to human life in one of these ads and ran like a picture of her next to one of these defendants. So really, these kind of racially tinged soft on crime attacks. And I, I think she's also just kind of fearless in uh, the way that she has conducted herself on the bench. She's sort of like our Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, you know, she has been known to write these really fiery, passionate dissents. She's been a frequent dissenter, even with a Democratic majority on the court. So I think we're going to see even more of those now that we have a Republican majority. She pulled no punches with her dissent on Friday. She she called what the court did a power grab. She said it's a display of raw partisanship. And she said it calls into question the impartiality of the courts, which is really crucial. You know, not to be too cynical, but I think have we reached a point where some of these folks would be like, so like they don't care. They have the power and they use the power. Perhaps they believe to advance an end they believe is good. I'm not going to try to mind read, but I feel like they are not as this doesn't affect them or alter them. They're doing things that I've seen. Again, you'd comment it like there was a sense of concern about the appearance of either impropriety or corruption or kind of basic ethical standards that you would sort of, in a way, have ingrained in you by the time you would reach this position. And it's just to kind of allude to sort of a childhood show of mine, a kind of boss hog, just kind of, you know, uh, good old boy style governance that, you know, is that what you're seeing? Is so? If so, that's kind of scary. No, I agree. It is scary. The Republicans are basically acting like the Republicans in the legislature. That's kind of mm-hmm. the way I would describe it. Who are those kind of like balls hog, good old boy Republicans? You know, we've had partisan elections now for a few cycles, and I think it's really made a difference um, in terms of the tones of the campaign. Mm-hmm. We've also had like a weakening of ethics rules under the Republican chief justice. Basically, these, these Republicans, once they win one um, office, they file to run in the next office, even though they're not up for re-election for another six years. And they're not supposed to do that until it's their election year, but that allows them to raise money and endorse other candidates and just generally campaign, you know, in, anytime they want, basically turning them into permanent candidates under the ethics rules. So we've seen a lot of changes that um, I think could lead the public to question whether the courts are really impartial or whether they're just sort of acting like Mm -hmm. other politicians right now. 
if you listen to what the Republicans say about this, they think that the former Democratic majority was the one that was acting, you know, outside of the Constitution, outside of the bounds of the law and imposing their own preferences. But the fact is, these were victories for the voters in these cases, mm -hmm. right? Nobody likes partisan gerrymandering except politicians. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the court uh, now it's looking like they're going to bring that back. It's just astounding to me. When I sort of was getting to, perhaps in my own naivete, I think sometimes you would look at certain decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court, and when you sometimes are looking at a, what appears now, unless things drastically change, a permanent conservative majority for at least a generation, or at least, you start to think, okay, well, and I've seen this as proposed as reform measures, what if they were directly elected? Like, you know, Samuel Alito has as much power he exerted more power potentially than the president and I can't vote him out of office. Like that seems more reflective of democracy, reflective of the fact that they are perhaps sometimes making partisan decisions. Would this be better? But it doesn't appear to be like it, you know, it's essentially if you remove any aspect of sort of trying to impartially review the law, if you just have a super, legislature in the Supreme Court at the state or the U.S. level, it just seems kind of a, a lost cause, right? Like it's not necessarily making it more democratic. I don't know that when you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, I don't know if changing how they're chosen is, is going to fix the problem, really. Mm -hmm. um, we talk a lot about that at the state level when it comes to state courts, should you elect or appoint judges. But I don't know. Um, I, I would like to see Congress passing some laws that curb the power of the court. If they're not going to pack the court, at least limit the court's jurisdiction over some of these civil rights cases and other issues where, you know, we've seen these radical rulings. But I don't know. Um, I mean, that's it's tough. I mean, I, I, I don't know if courts today are more powerful than they used to be, but it sure seems like at the federal level, so much of what's happening policy-wise, change-wise in D.C. is centered on the U.S. Supreme Court. And I would like to see Congress take a more active role in balancing out, you know, the Supreme Court in terms of, like, what it can and can't do. But I have no idea if there's any chance of that happening uh, anytime soon. And what you describe, for folks who know, having them run as partisan, I live in Oregon, I think there's still cases where they're nonpartisan judges and so in a very hyper-partisan kind of political climate that we exist, you're sort of going to be guaranteed in a way, especially in sort of a purplish or depending on the year, because last year was a year that was, generally speaking, Republicans somewhat obviously underperformed at the Senate and kind of had a narrow, a narrower majority at the House than they had wished, but they obviously swept in North Carolina and cases like that. So you're looking at, at situations where people can just sort of vote. If they're associating judges with the party, it's just going to be reflective of the party's power in the state, while there's also simultaneously making it impossible to answer to voters. And it seemed like North Carolina was sort of this example of democracy in action when there was the uh, the so-called bathroom bill. And it's interesting, I would think, and I, I know they're not exactly similar situations, but comparing what of course had occurred there with the governor in North Carolina, with a sort of an anti-trans bill to sort of Ron DeSantis running a sort of almost overtly anti-queer agenda and 
being rewarded, whereas in the sense of being reelected overwhelmingly, whereas in North Carolina, it seemed like the voters said, no, we disagree. We're going to remove you. It felt like the voters were able to speak and, and kind of curb excesses. And yet we're sort of seeing Republicans saying, ah, we don't like when that happens. Yeah, I mean, and so in 2016, when they tried to pack the court during the lame duck session, that was uh, they also tried to really take away a lot of the governor's power as well. They didn't want either either branch of government to check their power. And I think in terms of like progressives and the backlash, I think it's possible that we we were more united and more active when there is something crazy going on, like HB2, the bathroom bill, or that discriminatory voter ID law that I talked about earlier in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, that bill is what uh, I think a, a huge factor in what uh, spurred the Moral Monday movement led by Reverend William Barber here in North Carolina. Folks were really incensed about all these attacks on civil rights that we were seeing coming from our legislature and being signed by our, our Republican governor at the time. And they really got out and took to the streets in protests. And they also got out and went to the ballot box. That's why we saw these wins in 2016 and 2018. But after 2018, our legislature lost some of the Republican votes because of the litigation over gerrymandering. They kind of lost some of their gerrymandering advantage and they lost the power to override the governor's veto. And I just wonder if since then people haven't been as tuned into what's going on in Raleigh. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I don't know if that's the case. That's just kind of a suspicion that I have that that when the legislature had so much power, people were really tuned in and paying attention and resisting. But right now, they they don't have as much power because the governor's got the veto. Mm-hmm. The only thing they can really do is draw these election districts in a way that's going to let them hang on to their own power. That's the big mm-hmm. thing that they're going to be concerned about this year, I think. They're talking about overriding the governor's vetoes with a few Democratic votes, but so far the Democratic caucus has been pretty united on abortion and other kind of hot button issues like that. That's good to hear. So sometimes I say that sort of drawing a line between Republicans playing hardball, this politics, you play the win, and in an extreme example, essentially a failed state. Like you have the illusion of a democracy, but the House is always winning. It's a very bad kind of uh, electoral Vegas. And is it subjective or is there kind of a line as to where, okay, well, these folks aren't really operating in any sort of form of democracy? Because I guess maybe it's about a principle of democracy of voters being able to speak or then there being an independent judiciary. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how would you make that line? There are folks out there that study this kind of thing, and and they have called out North Carolina in the past 10 years for democratic backsliding. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, up until, you know, 2010, we were liberalizing our voting laws to make it easier to vote. We had pre-registration for teenagers and things like that. It, we had voting rights activists working on that, you know, for a long time, making it happen. And we've seen all of that stuff kind of pulled back, you know, we, and we have all this partisanship in the judiciary that I was talking about earlier. So I think it's definitely happening in North Carolina. For the last three or four years, we've had the state Supreme Court there as a stop to try and make our state more democratic. And they've done so much with respect to voting rights and also criminal justice. Up until the 
previous Democratic majority, our state Supreme Court had never ruled in favor of a defendant who claimed that prosecutor had struck people from the jury because of their race. Every other state Supreme Court in the South had tackled that problem, but we hadn't. But of course, those decisions were party line decisions. So I expect that the Republicans are probably going to backtrack on that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's very alarming. I, I don't want people to lose hope. I mean, um, mm-hmm. we still have elections coming up in this state. We have Supreme Court elections coming up in two years or any, uh, next year, actually. And two years after that, two years after that, we've got elections for governor coming up, which are going to be really crucial. And we've done good things in this state. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago. And I think we can get there again. It's just going to take people really turning out, paying attention to what's going on in Raleigh. That's a very good point. And I would ask a follow-up to that would be following that election in 2022, do you think the extent of the Supreme Court being on the ballot to agree, literally so, were these folks like really put, you know, was there a case from the party, the Democratic Party of pushing the fact that we need to run against? Because I feel like, again, to use the Supreme Court example, people will be, would have been walking over broken glass, a lot of liberals to vote against, to vote to remove, say, Clarence Thomas or or Samuel Alito. And so do you think that in North Carolina amongst progressives, uh, Democrats, liberals, what have you, there's this awareness of the kind of Republican justices and what they're about? Well, I don't think there is yet, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I did everything I could. I spoke to people at events. I, I wrote about the election to try and educate people about the election as it was coming up. But uh, we're having a big debate right now in our state within the Democratic Party about who should be leading it, what kind of tactics we should use, what what went wrong in 2022. Well, I don't really know much about like party politics and that kind of thing. I do know that, you know, we won in 2016, we won in 2018, even with partisan elections when we got Anita Earls on the on the court. I don't know what's happened the last two elections, but I think, you know, something needs to be changed. There, there needs to be some real reflection, I think, in North Carolina. There are people out there that think the party should invest a lot more in rural areas or at least places outside of the urban areas. I don't know, but I, I also think that I saw some issues with turnout in the urban areas uh, in November as well. So I don't know. I think they need to take a look top to bottom at at what's going on here and how we can actually win some statewide elections. Somehow our governor, Roy Cooper, keeps getting reelected. I don't know what's up with that, but I wish that would translate to judicial races and, um, you know, some other offices as well. Absolutely. Just a couple more questions with respect to your time, but just the one. So this court, is this the one that, let's say, it's 2024, God forbid Trump runs again and Biden beats him in North Carolina. And he says, oh, yeah, there was fraud. Please throw that out and give me electoral votes. And, and it's the case is like literally written on a cocktail napkin. There's no you know, bearing. But would it go before this court? Is this the court that would decide something like that? It could. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they have the final say on, on state law. So if the question is, does this vote count under state law? It could definitely go to the state Supreme Court. It'll go through our election officials first, but so much of that stuff gets litigated and you hear about it um, happening in the election. So I think that's a definite real possibility here, um, just like it is in so many other swing states. Yeah, I mean, I think the story of 2020 was a lot of the courts sort of held the line. And I think there was Trump was somewhat disappointed. He did not, uh, he wasn't shy about expressing his disappointment that certain judges he had actually literally appointed at different levels, including up to the Supreme Court, did not 
summarily rule in his favor. But if we're getting judges acting as partisan actors, that's certainly now certainly scary. You don't you don't feel that sense of there's at least a sense of respect for the law, even regardless of whether you're a conservative or a liberal. Yeah, and I, and I don't know. I mean, I honestly think that if something like that were to happen here in 2024, it would all depend on Chief Justice Paul Newby. He's sort of the uh, leader of the Republican faction on the court. He has recruited some of these Republican justices that are now on the bench with him to run. And he sort of uh, led their group effort to like campaign together in 2020. And I think he's the real intellectual leader of the court, or at least the Republican majority. I think all the other Republicans take their cue from him, um, mm -hmm. except for maybe one of the Republicans who was just elected. He might be a little more independent. He's not really tied to Paul Newby. But uh, the problem is, even if he didn't go along with it, the Newby faction is still the majority by themselves um, because there are five Republicans and two Democrats on our court. So I don't know. I mean, it, uh, it's a scary thought. I, I would hope that... Chief Justice Newby would be more concerned about, you know, the ramifications for his court if they were to be seen as deciding the the presidential election, you know, like that. But I have no idea. And I guess my, you know, my final sort of question, comment, if you, you know, and you've discussed this both in your book and, and, and elsewhere, but I think something important for people to understand, because I've written about these election cases and issues and something Republicans will often say is we're not trying to keep people from voting. We believe in democracy. I think the mantra in 2020 was counting every legal vote. And I think the average, you know, well-intentioned person sort of from a nonpartisan perspective thinks, oh, that makes sense. And my concern sometimes, and I, and I try to make sure this is clear, is that, well, no, 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 this is what they say in dictatorships. Like they, they don't come out with like a twirling their mustache, even the worst dictatorship and say no one gets to vote, they say, oh, this was fraud, or this wasn't legitimate, or these are, so, and, and just so we could wind up with your thoughts on that, of kind of connecting that, because I feel like that's important for people to understand. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw charges of voter fraud in uh, 2016, when the Republican governor lost his bid for re-election, he actually accused a lot of people of fraud, and um, there was a big uh, lawsuit over that, like a libel lawsuit, because those people hadn't <laughs> committed voter fraud, as you can imagine. So that was happening here in North Carolina, even before 2020 and the big lie started with Donald Trump. So that's definitely something that, uh, that I think could happen again here for sure. But I will say in that case, all of our institutions worked the way they were supposed to. Our elections board took a look at it. And the courts, uh, you know, didn't get involved in any kind of way, even though, um, you know, at that time, the there was still a conservative majority on our state Supreme Court until the progressive majority was sworn in. And it didn't happen then. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it wouldn't happen again in 2024 when there's going to be so much riding on that election. I am. You've encouraged me, Billy, and I, I hope that folks in North Carolina and whatever understand, you know, the Democratic Party and others of like... While we still have a chance these elections, get out and vote. If they're going to be partisan, you got to, you know, make that clear, make what these judges stand for clear. And so thank you so much for uh, being on top of this. It, you know, I, I was kind of very shocked when I saw the New York Times article. So I was glad that you were able to come on and kind of clarify what's happening in a way so that it's not complete panic. And uh, again, I 
advise people to check out your book. It's really good reading. It really is informative. Uh, Usurpers, How Voters Stopped the GOP Takeover of North Carolina's Courts. This is still obviously an ongoing thing. I'm sure there's plenty of material for a sequel. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, follow uh, Billy on Twitter. I'm going to have that information in the description as well, because he's been also commenting on what's occurring and sometimes real time. And it's been helpful for me to uh, read that as well. So um, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Billy, for, for coming on and uh, speaking with us. And we'll uh, see you again. See you around. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. This has been The Playtyper Guy with your host, Stephen Robinson. Thanks for listening. Send your thoughts and feedback to ser1840 at gmail.com. Please leave a review and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Playtyper Guy. We'd also love it if you'd join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Robinson. Thanks and see you next time. The Playtyper Guy is a K-Taser production, copyright 2023.